The series that we've been going through uh, for the past uh, several months, almost um, more than a year, has been the imperfect sequential life, earthly life and ministry of Jesus. The last couple of weeks, we have been taking a look at Jesus' response to his disciples' questions about the temple and his statement that not one stone will be left upon another and the questions about his return. He spent a considerable time teaching them about the signs that will appear before his return and making sure that they were not deceived. He also has, we have at least six uh, recorded parables that Jesus has been teaching his disciples uh, related to his return. Now, if Jesus is spending this much time on a topic of his return, then probably it's very important. Like, it's like students who are uh, just before their semester is coming to an end and the teacher or professor is teaching and writing things on the board, is that you, the wise student pays close attention to what the, the teacher or professor is saying because they're thinking, it's probably going to be on the test. Or if you're working for a, a manager or an owner of a business and he or she is about to, to leave on a trip uh, and they're giving you some last minute details and, and tasks for you to do, then you can pretty much assure that they want those tasks accomplished before they return. And so it behooves you to pay attention to make sure, maybe write some notes so that you can prepare and have those tasks done before uh, the owner returns. And so similarly, Jesus is seriously teaching his disciples about the signs of his return and being alert and being prepared and being ready and, and those types of things. And so uh, we're going to take one more look at these last three parables. Now, the, the problem in, in this situation is, quite frankly, we love to hear the, the scriptures and the stories of how much Jesus loves us. We, we, uh, the world pretty much knows uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Uh, we love to hear those passages. We love to sing those songs. Uh, we even teach them to our children, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, because the Bible tells me so. And we love the parable that uh, I consider to be a misnomer, not named correctly, uh, but you will know it as the, pro the parable of the prodigal son, uh, because we tend to identify with that prodigal son and how we get away from God and then coming back after messing up our lives, he accepts us unconditionally and lovingly and as if we had never left. Now, the reason I say that I believe that parable is misnomer is I think it's correctly called a father and two sons because the parable is much more about the father and how he deals with his two sons, one who's a prodigal and one who is incensed with the fact that he didn't get more because he stayed with the father. 
But we love those parables and we love those teachings. And, and we love the singing, for instance, Amazing Grace. We talk about how his grace is, is sufficient and enough and, and that it overwhelms and that uh, uh, even, even the song says, uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Where I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And we, we take a look at how the Lord, his grace and his love towards us, and, and that's true. And we need to emphasize that, and we need to remember it, especially those times when we do go astray. But there are also parables, and there are also teachings of Jesus that aren't just about God's love and not just about Jesus's love, but about how we are to behave in this world, how we are to relate to it, and the consequences of our following Jesus's commands and not following them. And so Jesus has taught in these previous parables that we need to understand the signs of the time. If we can figure out the weather and those types of things, then we should be at least acknowledgeable about the return of Jesus because the weather will change uh, in a short period of time, but Jesus, his kingdom will last forever for he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he, he's preparing us to say, these are the signs so that you'll know and that you need to be prepared and you need to be alert and you need to be ready. Uh, and that on top of that, not only are we to be those things, but there are things for us to do to be going about the king's business and how we are to be faithful in that. These last three parables that Jesus is going to be teaching tells us not only about preparation and being ready, but it also discusses consequences for not being that. And so we're going to take a look at that and we're going to see how Jesus' teaching is direct and to the point and talks about consequences. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25. And like I said, uh, it's uncomfortable to talk about consequences because we like to hear about how much God loves us and how much he forgives us. And uh, many people like to go to churches where all they do is preach evangelistic services because they're comfortable, because they got their salvation and they're not challenged to do anything further. And so they can just say, I have been saved. And how about you? And so it is a disservice to only teach, if you will, the positive aspects of the gospel, but without mentioning the consequences. And so Matthew 25, starting with verse one, it says this, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins. So I want you to know that there is a shift here. Jesus is saying, not as the kingdom is growing, but when I return at that point of time, this is this parable when it's comparable to the kingdom. And he says, it's comparable to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. 
but the prudent took oil and the flask along with their lamps. Now, the prudent are, are wise because they understand that a lamp only carries so much oil and they're not certain how long the bridegroom is going to be uh, tearing, how long it'll be before he comes. So they want to be prepared. So they take not only the lamp, but the oil. The foolish only take their lamps, but without the oil. This would be comparable, if you will, in today's world, where you would take a flashlight, but you wouldn't bring any batteries. The flashlight in and of itself does you no good. It is the batteries that gives power to the flashlight to produce light. And so the foolish don't do that. Now, I find it interesting that in this parable, Jesus is using a lamp and oil. Oftentimes, oil is viewed as the Holy Spirit. There's an anointing of oil. There's an anointing when David became king. And other times when the Holy Spirit would be present and there would be a task to be done, uh, oil would be placed there. So I can't say for sure that Jesus meant that, but I think it's interesting that he uses oil and a lamp. And also, the word of God is known as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so I, I think the parable is an excellent one, not that I can criticize Jesus for his teachings, but I think it's interesting that he uses oil and a lamp in this parable. And so we have those who are wise who, who have the oil and the foolish who don't. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Notice the wise and the prudent all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a, a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now, this is first interesting. The, the prudent say, look, at, we came prepared. Lack of preparation, your part, does not constitute an emergency on mine. If I give you some oil, then I will ultimately be like you, unprepared. So they said, you need to go and buy oil. Now, this is about midnight. I would venture to say, even in most cities, it would be difficult at midnight in today's world to find oil. But especially during the first century, when most businesses were closed before sundown, because it was difficult to see. And so they're told, okay, make some emergency preparation because we're not going to share any with you. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Jesus says, he didn't wait for the other five. The bridegroom, he said, he came. The, the five virgins that were prudent with their oil and their lamps processed with him to where the marriage feast was to take place. And even though it was a strange hour at midnight, they were ready to go because they were prepared. But the interesting thing here is that once the ten five virgins and the bridegroom 
entered into the place where the wedding feast was to take place, the door was shut. There is a consequence to not being prepared. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Interesting, he doesn't open the door. The consequence of not being prepared is that the door is shut. The response is not, I used to know you, but I don't know you now. Or because of your lack of preparation, I no longer know you. The answer is, I do not know you. What a terrible word to hear from the master. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So Jesus is telling us that we need to be prepared. We need to be ready, and that readiness is preparation to have, if you will, oil in our laps to be prepared so when he comes, whether we're asleep or not, that we have made preparations for that time. But the consequence of not being prepared not being his, is that the door shuts. You see, there isn't a second opportunity. They could knock on the door and say, but Lord, we have oil now. But Lord, we're ready now. But the answer quite simply is, I don't need you now. I've gone from where I was to the wedding feast. The light needed to be during that period of time. You weren't prepared I do not know you, and you remain outside of his presence. To me, that's a terrible outcome. And so this parable, we need to understand and appreciate that it's not just to know his signs. It's not just to know that he's coming back, but it's to be prepared. And the best way to be prepared is to be his to have that oil, that Holy Spirit present in our lives. And he goes on and he teaches another parable. In verse 14, it says this. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability and he went on his journey. Now this parable sounds very similar to another parable that Jesus taught about the menace. The menace was a smaller denomination. And in this, he's going to be emphasizing some things. But the parable and the teachings are very similar. But notice that he gave five talents to, according to the ability, and two talents according to his ability, and one talent according to that person's ability. And then he went on a journey. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gave five, gained five more talents. Notice that this slave took the instruction seriously. He didn't wait for a period of time before he started investing, before he started doing those things to double what he had. He immediately went and started trading. So often we tend to be appreciative of what the Lord does for us and the gifts 
and the blessings, but then we sit on those gifts and blessings rather than to immediately invest. Verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Again, we see in the same way, he immediately began to invest. And because he had talent that was given to him, he was able to double from two to four. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, notice that in this parable, the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent are not the slaves. They're the ownership and possession of the master. And when the master returns, it is the master's talents. It is not the slaves. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you have entrusted me five talents. You have entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Now, in this parable, we see something significant that there is an accounting to be had. The master is going to say, I gave you these possessions. What did you do to invest to further my ownership? And so there is an accounting, and, and most of us, we're really uncomfortable with that. We're very uncomfortable with the fact that we have to give an accounting to God for what we've done with what he's given us. We, again, we talk about amazing grace and that our sins are forgiven, and that is true, and yes, it is. But there will be an accounting, and it's called the Bema Seat of Christ, where we will have to give an accounting to what we have done with what God has given us. Now, you may say, well, I don't have a lot. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe the fact is, is that you may only have the ability, according to the master, of one talent or two talents or five talents or what it may be. But I tell you this, take a breath. Take a second breath. Take a third breath. Those three breaths were given to you by God. I'm sure that there are other talents and abilities that he has given to you. And all too often, we are content with our salvation, knowing that someday he'll return, but very little regard with working for his kingdom. And so we see that this one is, has been rendering an account. He says, okay, I've, Gain five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now I want you to see that there is a reward here for this slave's ingenuity and work and response to his master's placing the talents in his possession. He tells him, well done. He not only tells him, well done, but he says, he's good and faithful. There is a, a joke that says that a man was talking about his marriage and that he said, yes, I have been faithful to that woman several times. 
And that's how we tend to be with the Lord. We are faithful, and then we're not faithful, and then we're faithful, and then we're not faithful. But here, I'm saying, he's good, and he's faithful. He's still a slave. He's not a freeman. He's still owned by the master. But the master tells him that he's good, and he's faithful. And because he's faithful in a few things, he says, I will put you in charge of many things. He not only has been given a commendation, if you will, he's been given a promotion. The Lord says that you're good and you're faithful, and I give you more to do with more responsibility because you've been faithful in a few things. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. It's not just a matter of, okay, you, you've been out there working and you come back and now you're doing it, doing more. It's God saying, you're now in the presence of your master and joyfully. Now, when we are in the presence of people, we oftentimes know whether those people enjoy us being around or not. If they enjoy us, there is that comfort, there is that relaxation because we know that there is relationship and the people or person who are, we're there with enjoy our company. And so we enjoy it and we, we, we stay longer perhaps. But when we are with people who really don't care about us or have something against us or, or uh, just don't like our personality or whatever the, the aspect may be, we're uncomfortable. God's saying because this slave was good and faithful. There is this relationship with the slave that is pleasant and joyful. Not a sense of, oh, I, I need to worry about my actions because it might offend. But there is that joyful presence. Verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I notice I want you to see this, that the commendation and the promotion is the same. It isn't, oh, well, the, the person with five talents got five more. Now there's 10. And so there's greater commendation to him then there is the one who had two talents and doubled the two. The blessings are the same. Well done, good and faithful slave. The promotion's the same. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. And the relationship is the same. Enter into the joy of your master. One of the mistakes we make as believers is all too often we take a look at what the other person is doing. Oh, that pastor has a bigger church, or that pastor has more baptism, or that pastor just builds a bigger building, or uh, this ministry reaches these people, and we tend to look at what other people are doing. And Jesus' commendation and Jesus' blessings are directed at the ability of those who gave something and their faithfulness and investment in his kingdom. And so instead of being concerned about 
what others are accomplishing. We need to take a look at what it is that we have been accomplishing with what Jesus has given us. Because the greatest blessing I can tell you, and the one I hope to hear, I hope to hear, is when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. And I don't even care if he puts me in charge of many things or anything. But I would love to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. And so we see, regardless of the outcome of their abilities, the commendation and the promotion and the blessings are the same. But there is one who is going to suffer a consequence. Verse 24 says this, And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Isn't it interesting, of these three slaves, the first two never said that the boss, that the master was hard. They simply went about doing what he had instructed. But this slave had a different opinion of the master, believing that he was difficult and that he expected more than he ought to expect. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew I reaped where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Notice the master doesn't debate his personality. He doesn't say, no, no, you misunderstood who I am. He doesn't even get her into the conversation with that. He simply says, okay, if that's how you perceived me, and that's perception and sometimes is reality, then you should have done something. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and upon my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. He's saying, not only was this servant, this slave, wicked, he was lazy. His fear took it so that he was an inappropriate slave and one who didn't serve the master. And he says, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. So he says, not only am I not giving you a commendation, I'm giving you a condemnation, but I'm going to take what I gave you and give it to the other. For to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. If the story ended there, that would be a tragic ending. But it doesn't end here. It says, throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when Jesus talks about the outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus is talking about hell. Not a figment of somebody's imagination. The scriptures talk about a literal hell. And Jesus 
talks about a literal hell and that we ought to avoid it. The scriptures tell us that the hell was prepared for Satan and his angels. And it's basically set up to have a maximum capacity of that. But the scriptures also teach us that as those who are going to hell, that hell expands to the place to occupy those who go there. For the scriptures tells us, it is not God's will that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so you'll hear people joke about hell. You'll hear people say, well, at least my friends will be there. In hell, there will be no friends. To me, the worst part of hell, not that I've been there and I hope never to be because I'm a child of the king, is not the fire. It's not the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the utter absence of God and no hope to ever be in his presence. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who want nothing to do with God. And God will give them exactly what it is they want. His absence. With no hope of ever being in it. And so in this second parable, we see that we are to get render an accounting to what God has given us. And that we, after giving that accounting, will either enter into his blessings and be in charge of things, or we'll find that we are on the outside looking in. Then there's a third parable that he's going to be teaching on Mount of Olives. This very place where after his crucifixion, he will ascend into heaven. And at this very place, when he returns to the earth, he will descend from heaven to this place. So when he's talking to his disciples about these parables and about his teaching, it's not as if there's some far off, but it's right here in their geographic area. It says this, but when the son of man comes in his glory, for you see, when he came into Jerusalem this time on a donkey and a colt and people were yelling Hosanna and laying out palm branches in their clothes and giving him some glory. But these same people will eventually cry out, crucify him, crucify him. But he's going to be coming in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, there's quite a bit of debate on when this is going to take place. My thinking is that this will take place after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. But don't take my word for it. Study the scriptures. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. Now notice he tells them again to come because they're blessed by the father and they are to inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them, but has been prepared for them, not in the last century, not in the last few minutes, but before the Lord ever said, let there be light. God's plan was affected then. It says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? So the question is, wait a minute, Lord. Yeah, they didn't debate that they didn't do these things. They're saying, well, when we did these things, we didn't see you. Yeah, we saw the people who were hungry or thirsty or in prison or sick. We saw those people, but we didn't see you. So when was it that we did these things for you? Because we didn't see you. The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You see, when Jesus says that there are two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, that those are the two great commandments. He just isn't talking some abstract theology. He's saying to love God is one aspect, to love your brother is the same aspect of that love. John in his writings will let her say, how can you say you love God who you did not see if you don't love your brother who you do see? Jesus, later on in this week, he will teach his disciples and give them a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love your brother as I have loved you and have given myself for you. And Jesus is saying, there is an equivalence. When you do it to a brother or a sister, you do it to me. Even those that don't seem to count, even the least of those that you wouldn't even turn your head and say, oh, they're certainly a part of the kingdom. Even the least, when you do it to them, you've done it for Jesus because you love God by loving your brother. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then, then, then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? There's someone saying, well, wait a minute. We didn't see you in those aspects. We didn't see you in need. So 
How is it that we missed that opportunity? Because we didn't see you in those conditions. And then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now there is a um, Bible verse and a, a expression. We oftentimes say, especially when, when uh, we don't know people who are in need and we're wondering where we should provide for that need or we're concerned that we might take, be taken care of. We often say, well, we may be in turning, uh, in, uh, entertaining angels unaware. And that's true. There are times when, when we may entertain angels unaware. Uh, I believe our church um, many, many decades ago had an event like that, and I won't uh, recount that event now. But I believe truly that the men who did the things that were helpful to this body were angels unaware. But more important than that, than entertaining angels unaware, is entertaining Jesus unaware. Would you, when you see someone truly in need, I'm not talking about those who are trying to flim-flam you or take advantage of you, whatever, but those who are in need, have you said, would I do it if it was Jesus? And the answer ought to be, yes, I would. Because I'm going to do this to the least of my brothers. To do these things when they cannot repay. When a person is thirsty, you don't give them a drink because you're hoping one day they can give you a drink. You do it because you love God and you love them. And then the consequence, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see that there is a division of the sheep and the goats. Those are his and those who aren't. And he divides them up so that there is no mistaking which group each belongs to. And then he presents rewards to those who are his. And the greatest reward that he can give is eternal life. He gives it to us. And it's not a life of drudgery and existence, but one of blessings and being in his presence and being in his kingdom and being active in that kingdom because he's blessed us. But there is a judgment, a punishment for those who aren't his, to those who failed to love the least of the brothers who had their hearts so shielded that they could not respond. And so Jesus tells us in these six parables, after explaining the signs of his return, that we need to be ready. We need to be on the alert. We need to be aware of those signs. We need to be prepared. We need not to wander around this earth waiting for his return, to be actively engaged in the promotion of his kingdom.
and that there are rewards of eternal life. But to those who fail to take heed, who aren't ready, who don't see the signs, to those who don't make preparation, to those who take what God has given them and have put it in the ground, and to those will be punishment, and the punishment will not last a few hours or a few days. Just as life is given to us eternally, there is punishment that is eternally. And so, there are consequences to Jesus' teachings and what our response to those teachings are. Oh yes, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Yes, his grace is amazing. He's also given us some instructions. He's told us to be prepared. He told us to work. He told us to love God and our fellow brother and sister. And if we fail to do so, the consequences are rejection, the door being shut, being cast out into outer darkness for eternity. I am fond of saying that the only perfect decision you make is the one you don't make because you have to live with the one you do make. And when it comes to life, that's generally true. If you decide that you want to um, become a doctor, there are certain things you have to give up and certain things you need to do to accomplish that. And making that decision, you set your life on a certain path. If you decide not to do anything and you just bumble around, that's a decision as well. The question is, when you make a decision, you have to live with that decision. So if you become a doctor, there are life and death decisions. There are uh, times when you'll be tired. There are times when you'll be rewarded. There are times when you'll wish you had done something else. You have to live with those decisions, whether they're good or bad. You didn't make the decision to do something else, you could look and say, well, that decision probably would have been better. My life would have been better because, but you didn't have to live with those consequences. But in this situation, the only obvious decision for us to make, the only one that we will never suffer the consequences ultimately is doing what the master said. But if we don't, we can spend an eternity of regret and being on the outside. So I encourage you to think about your decision, to think about whether we're prepared. There is a song that was popular uh, probably back in the 70s. It said, I wish we all been ready. 
That song was usually meant for those who weren't believers. But it's equally appropriate for all of us. I wish we'd all been ready because we were all doing what the master told us to do. We were all investing in the kingdom. And that we all hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So I encourage you as we're going to sing with everything, that you take the talents that God has given you. That's not for me to assess, that's for you to assess. But you take those talents and you serve him with everything. And you do not simply bury them in the ground and wait. And all God's people said,